0: And we come to do it together, that as Christians, as you said, that your disciples would be known by their love, and that that would impact and rock and change this world. We look to you today and ask that as we open your scripture, you'd open our hearts and minds and teach us something that we could use in our daily walk, that we could use as we leave from this place, that we could use all through this week, and see our own lives transformed, and as such, see the lives of those around us. (laughs) Changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, grab a seat this morning. Welcome to Ordinary Faith. As Pastor Michael said, my name's Steve. If it's your first time, if you haven't been here in a while, I just hope you feel welcome. We are not trying to put on the dog. We are just here to worship God together, and we invite you to join us. If that helps, then glory be to God. We're not trying to get anything out of you. We don't even take an offering. We're not trying to squeeze you just for being here. We're trying to point you to Jesus. Amen. Today we're talking about fuzzy worship. English gets to be complex. It's a complex language. And when you're growing up, you're learning it from, from scratch. As a baby, you really don't know any difference. But if you've ever met someone or you've been the person who's tried to learn it as a second language, English hard hard. <coughs> It'd be real hard. And there are words that we use all the time, like time, for instance, that we use so often, they're part of the fabric of what we do. But if you ever go to explain it, if you were ever to try to define the word time, where would you start? (laughs) I I went to look it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and this is fun. A non-spatial continuum that is measured in terms of events which succeed one another from past to future, or past pre- present to future. Uh, uh-huh. How's that working for your four-year-old? <laughs> A non-spatial continuum that is measured in terms of events which succeed one another from past to present, through the future, which simplifies everything, doesn't it?) <laughs> Pastor Michael and I have talked a lot over the last few months about how different people use different words. It's the same word. You'd hear it in conversation and you'd understand exactly what they say. Except often, especially when it comes to faith words and faith traditions, we'll take the same word and we'll mean one thing and someone else will mean one thing. And what I said was not what you heard. And how it gets, it gets confusing. And while when you start talking to people that come out of different backgrounds or that grew up in church or out of church or wherever, that you could say something and if you're not careful, they're going to hear something completely different. And maybe they're excited or maybe they're really offended. <clears throat> Trying to define something can certainly overcomplicate it. On the other hand, if you never define anything, that's a mess. And, and that leaves you wide open to misinterpretation and wide open to creating issues and confusion. In Ordinary Faith, we're trying to eliminate ambiguous terms, ambiguous phraseology, ambiguous ideas so that when we say something, you know exactly what we're talking about so that you can walk out of Here, with a clear picture of where we're coming from, that helps you in your faith, that helps you in your conversations with God, that helps you all the way through simply to know because that gives you the opportunity to say, Yes, I'm with you on board, or I don't know, maybe I'm not there yet. And around here, we like to welcome people who aren't quite there yet. Everyone from skeptic to follower knows what it is to hurt, what it is to doubt what it is to hope, what it is to have some love. Our goal here is to be a place that unchurched people and churched people alike can find appealing and engaging, to be a place where people that are in process, that are in the middle somewhere, can gather, a place where the curious, the unconvinced, the skeptical, the broken, the I used to believe sort of people can come together alongside the committed, the convinced, the sold out, and the rest of us, that we can all just sort of gather and dig into this idea of what faith in Jesus Christ is all about. Today we're going to talk about worship. It's a word that we use all the time. It's a word that gets used with the music team all the time. In fact, a lot of people use it. Entire industries have been built around taking the word worship And nothing wrong with the Christian music industry, but if you were to listen to some of them talk, it's just a self-propagating sort of thing. Well, you need to listen to K-Love 24-7 so that you can have some Jesus and get your worship on. We always use it as if everyone understands exactly what we're talking about, and that's not necessarily the case. Is it? I mean, the word worship, we say one thing, that could mean something different. We say it a lot of times what people hear is religious Praise and worship and singing and music. It it comes down to this music and singing sort of thing, worship. And yet, worship's a lot more than the warm-up show leading up to the message on a Sunday. Worship according to the Bible is a whole nother thing because English is really good for me. (laughs) In fact, when you really start digging in, and that's what we're talking about, worship is what defines us. As human beings. More specifically, what we define, uh, what we worship is what defines us. The core of our beings is primarily defined by what we worship. More than by what we think, what we know, or what we believe, the core of who we are is defined by (coughs) what we worship. St. Augustine, way back, said we are what we love. We are what we worship. Everybody everywhere worships. It's the fundamental drive of life and one of the unique distinctions of humanity. Followers of Jesus, we worship. But so do atheists and agnostics and skeptics. Democrats and Republicans and independents, they all worship. Rich, the poor, everyone in between, they all worship. Something, someone, everybody everywhere worships. We don't, always ne- we don't all necessarily worship the God in heaven. We don't all necessarily worship the same thing or at the same altar, but everybody everywhere worships. It could be an entertainer or a sports figure or someone else. It could be a thing or a possession or an activity, but we all worship. Maybe it seems crazy that ancient cultures, people would take a, a piece of wood or a rock and kind of carve into it and set it up and, then look at it and bow down and say, okay, I'm going to trust you to take care of me. I'm going to trust you with my hopes and dreams. Because and we don't do that these days. But every day in our lives, we'll do something similar with things like entertainment or money or power, our career maybe. Idolatry comes down to trusting something that's not God. Simple definition. So if our trust is in our money, in our family, in our career, in the economy, in the government, in ourselves, whatever, we've stepped across the line and into idolatry. Now, none of those things are wrong on their own. Money's great. We don't ask for it out loud, but that's what drives this church and helps make it run. The economy, we sure hope it it waits, 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 waits to crash. The government, we pray and we vote and we do everything we can to be involved. Okay, These are not bad things. It's when our trust goes into those things in place of God and takes that shift <coughs> of you make me satisfied and you cover my needs. That's when we get into dangerous territory. Follow these breadcrumbs. If, we're gonna, if I'm going to replace God with... Anything, something, then that means I'm choosing not only what to worship, but what to replace God with. And when we've chosen whom or what we replace God with, then actually we become in control. And what we're actually worshiping is me or ourselves. The Apostle Paul wrote about that people like that, to the church at Rome, he said this. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God. They wouldn't even give him thanks. Instead, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself. Today we're going to look at why we worship. We're going to consider a definition of worship. And we're going to engage in some acts of worship together that we can do corporately. So first off, why do we worship in the first place? Arguably, that's what we were created for. Now, to set that up properly, we're going to take a look at five principles of purpose. The first one, nothing exists without purpose in the first place. In other words, the purpose is the reason that the entire thing exists. Person, place, object exists. Because there's a purpose behind it. Second, purpose determines the potential of any object. The purpose governs the ability that that thing can have, might have, will have. Okay? Third, no product determines its own purpose. The purpose is the exclusive domain, the exclusive purview of the maker, or the manufacturer, whoever's creating it. That's who defines the purpose. Fourth, failure occurs when purpose is ignored. When we use something for not its purpose, we risk using it to the point of failure. It loses its... If it doesn't fulfill its purpose, it loses its significance. Finally this. Nothing exists for itself. A car doesn't exist for itself. A building isn't constructed for itself. The earth wasn't created for itself. The chair you're sitting on wasn't built for the chair. And we... Don't exist for ourselves. You weren't created for you. We have a maker who determined why he made us, who determined what our purpose was. And in the book of Isaiah, there's this point where God himself explains why. He says this, Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. Israel, the one who formed you says, don't be afraid. For I have ransomed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them, I made them, and they will sing songs of praise to me. If we jump to the book of Revelation, it says this, You are worthy, O Lord, uh, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things. And for your pleasure, they were created and exist. God created us for himself. To bring Him pleasure. God created us on purpose. We're not here for us. Our assignment and purpose on planet earth goes far beyond taking care of our own wants, needs, and desires. We were made to worship God and bring pleasure to him. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to worship God and bring him pleasure. So what does worship mean, actually? How can we define it? How can we get a handle on it? And what in the world is fuzzy worship? Like many ideas that are deeply ingrained in our psyche and our being in our everyday process, trying to define a word like worship, trying uh, trying to define a lot of Religious theological terms can lead down some pretty wicked rabbit hole. Well, wicked wrong words, but some pretty crazy rabbit holes. It happens a lot. So let's look at a, defin- look at a definition from a guy named D.A. Carson. He defines worship this way. Hold on. Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to the creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. This side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. While all true worship is God-centered, Christian worship is no less Christ-centered. Empowered by the Spirit and in line with the stipulations of the new covenant, it manifests itself in all our living, finding its impulse in the gospel... "...which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God, and therefore also with our fellow image-bearers and co-worshippers. Such worship, therefore, manifests itself both in adoration and action, both in the individual believer and in corporate worship, which worship offered up in the context of the body of believers who strive to align all the forms of their devout description of all worth to God with the panoply of new covenant mandates and examples that bring to fulfillment the glories of antecedent revelation and anticipate the consummation." Wait, what? How am I going to work with my kids to teach them what worship is when that's what I've got to work with? Right? Would you even want to sit down with coffee, over coffee with that guy? And to be fair, even he admits that his own definition is well, uh, probably too complex, is how he puts it. It's like trying to trim your toenails with a chainsaw. All right, kids, don't flinch. Here we go. Sometimes when our definitions of words are too complex, we've totally complicated the thing that we're trying to talk about. When our understanding of God gets to this level, are we having a study in school at seminary about him, or are we trying to build a relationship? Because I don't know about you, but if I were to talk to my spouse that way, even if I were complimenting her, that wouldn't connect. She wouldn't care. It wouldn't do anything to build our relationship. It's not that I'm saying anything wrong or improper or bad. Those are all great things. But my goodness gracious, wouldn't it simple I love you be a little better if we're trying to build some relationship? If your concept of God is overcomplicated, you're probably going to have definitions of your theology including worship, that are way overcomplicated. On the alternative side, if your concept of God is vague or distant, remote, you're going to have worship that's fuzzy, that's not real anchored. There's no way around it. When there isn't a solid definition of who or what the object of our worship is, there's no way that our worship can have clarity to be fair that's why when we're serving a God who is spirit compared to some of the things we look at in the world and can see and touch and taste and they're a little more tangible sometimes we fall into the trap of idolatry simply because it's there and we can put a thumb on it when we're serving a God who's spirit we have to grow into that When the object of our worship is poorly defined, it's inevitable that the focus of our worship actually even begins to creep, shift, expand toward ourselves. Slowly but surely, we increasingly become our own object of worship. And how can we tell when that starts to happen? Well, when we come into a worship service looking for warm fuzzies. Oh. When we... Started having conversations like, that didn't really connect today. The message, I got what he's saying, but it didn't do anything for me. The music was good, but those last three songs, I could have, we should replace those. I don't even like those songs. We've all heard people say that. In fact, some of us, like me, have had conversations like that. It didn't do anything for me today. Here's the thing. Worship isn't about me, and worship isn't about you. That's right. Amen. By definition, we're not supposed to be getting anything out of worship. By definition, we're supposed to be giving worship to God. In fact, dozens of times, all through the Bible, every single book, everywhere, it says, bring worship to God, bring glory to God, bring honor to God, bring your praise to God. Give Him Your sacrifice, for example, in Psalms, give to the Lord the glory he deserves, bring your offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in all his holy splendor, let all the earth tremble before him. When we get to the point that we're actually looking for warm fuzzies in worship, because the object of our worship is ungrounded and unanchored and has kind of crept towards what's in it for me, we've missed the point. Self-centeredness destroys worship. That's right. Good. Not only am I the one who brings worship, left unchecked, I'm the one who destroys worship. Because if that's the case, then Jesus becomes my servant. And all y'all are just entertainers here performing for me. And that ain't worship. That's right. So how do we simplify things and get rid of the fuzziness? How can we clarify things so we're not dealing with fuzzy worship anymore? Get closer to God. Well, that sounds simple. That sounds like the sort of thing that you could hear anywhere, even on radio theology. But here's the deal. The closer we get to God, the clearer we'll understand what he's all about. And the more worship bubbles up inside us. So how do we get closer to God? Worship God. Now, those of you debate team people are going to say, wait a minute. That's circular logic. That's circular reasoning. Get to know God by worshiping God and worship God to get to know. We're going in a circle, but it's not a debate issue. This is a lot more like a kid, a baby, an infant learning to speak. Every infant everywhere starts with the same sound. "Ah, Ah. Ah. Sometimes it sounds like wah, but ah, uh. and then they'll throw in a, a, a consonant or, or two, ba 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 ba, <laughs> ma ma, and we start adding some consonants and mixing them together, and all of a sudden we get a word, dad da. Why is it that they always say dad first? I mean, I kind of like that, but it always ticks my wife off. They make the sound, same sounds, same sounds, same sounds, over and over and over and over over and over and over and over and over until those sounds kind of start forming into words and until those words start kind of collecting into a vocabulary and all of a sudden, especially if it's a girl, she's six and a half months old and she's talking up here and then you wish it was just, ah, ah the same with building our worship. We start simple, based on what we know, what we've learned about God. We can learn one thing about God, we can worship that. And then that starts to grow. As our knowledge grows, our worship will grow, and our relationship with him can grow, because our understanding of him will grow. And it's not just a circle, it's more like a spiral. Yeah, we keep clipping around to the same ideas, but it's grown, and there's something more we've learned, and it builds, and it grows up, and it continues. So let's pick up a few key words out of scripture today that's going to help us sort out exactly what worship's all about. We're going to start with the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. You've heard this before. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be as a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. All right, let's, the word we're going to pick up are the, the two words, is personal sacrifice. Our bodies, our lives. Next, according to Samuel, there are things more pleasing to the Lord than sacrifice. He was talking to Saul when he said this. Samuel replied, what's more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams or burnt burnt offerings, burnt sacrifices. So now we've got two. We've got personal sacrifice. We've got obedience and submission. We're looking at key words to kind of anchor our worship on. We're looking at key things that God is looking for from us to build our worship around. Okay? Third, the author of Hebrews adds praise into the mix. It's not that praise and worship and singing and music isn't part of it. No. God loves that stuff. There's a reason we do it. Here's what he says. Let us always offer praise to God as our sacrifice through Jesus, which is The offering presented by lips that confess him as Lord. So we've got personal sacrifice, obedience and submission, and offerings of praise. That kind of covers it, right? Praise is an acceptable sacrifice. Giving our bodies to God is also an acceptable sacrifice. Submission and obedience are better than sacrifice. What's left? Well, Paul's got something to weigh in on. According to him, everything Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All right? So our list just increased. Personal sacrifice, obedience and submission, offerings of praise, and whatever else we do. We're often refer to this kind of gathering Sunday mornings as a worship service. I got news for you. The worship doesn't start at 10 and end at 11 because Michael always goes over. No, the worship doesn't start at 10. It's, it's not a, a time-constrained sort of thing. That's not the... The worship starts when you roll out of bed on a Sunday instead of rolling over. That's an act of worship. When you greet someone in the parking lot, that, that's an act of worship. You help someone to their chair, that can be an act of worship. You meet up for lunch after church with someone, whether you are talking about the messages, good little Christian girls and boys, or not. That can be an act of worship. You show up for school or work or wherever and you give your very best effort, that, done for God, is an act of worship. You hang out with your family and friends and enjoy the day and maybe even skip church. That can be an act of worship. Praying for someone whose life is going through the grinder. That's an act of worship. Everything that we do can be given to God as an act of worship. In fact, when we use our lives for God's glory, it all becomes an act of worship. So let's recap. What's worship? Well, if we could take everything we just talked about and distill it and condense it and put it in a little cap bottle so that even the kids could understand it, how might we define worship? If we could incorporate the ideas of sacrifice and obedience and submission and praise and not overcomplicate the whole thing, because we've seen where that goes, how might we define worship? Giving ourselves back to God. Giving my life back to the guy who gave it to me in the first place. Giving my hopes and dreams to God. Giving my past train wrecks. To God, giving my future opportunities and potential, giving ourselves back to God. And that's our landing point today. What is worship? Say it with me. Giving ourselves back to God. What is worship? Say it with me. Giving giving ourselves back to God. That's where we're landing today. Worship is giving me back to God. Nothing less. Kind of covers everything because God wants our everything. Amen. Covers personal sacrifice, it covers obedience and submission, it covers offerings of praise. Covers everything else we do. Today. To kind of get our heads wrapped around some corporate opportunities for worship, some way we do things together, some way we worship, ways we worship together. We're gonna engage. I'm gonna invite you. I'm gonna invite you. Everybody loves to be invited to a party. No one loves to be told you got a meeting on Thursday when it's Friday. You're like, okay, what in the world? We're gonna invite you to worship together with us today. Some simple things. Some of these we do all the time at Ordinary Faith. Some of these we do once in a while. But, for example, we can read scripture together. We do this frequently. Here's a scripture. Read it with me. Know that the Lord is God. He made us and we belong to him. That's an act of worship. We can worship God by giving him a clap offering. It's in the Old Testament. Let's give him a clap offering. (laughs) That is... It's an Old Testament form of worship. So things like waving grain at him, Um, a wave, right, doing the wave to God. So are things like having a barbecue. They called it sacrifice, but let's be honest. If you were God and you smelled the guy next door, light it, right? You know the feeling. You walk out your back door and you're like, oh, somebody's somebody's got some ribs. Why do you think God likes it? We're made in his image. The crazy thing about those, the crazy thing about a clap offering is to give a clap offering to God. You've got to believe that he's there. Believe that he's paying attention to us. Believe that he hears. That's a lot of faith. Wave offering, you've got to believe that he's looking down to see you and me. That he's paying attention to you and me. A barbecue... You just got to believe he's a guy, right? So. Third, we can worship by expressing our, our gratitude to God. We can worship him by expressing our gratitude to God. I want you to do something. I want you to think of something that you were grateful for, thankful for, that you appreciate, that you've seen God do recently. In your life, in someone else's life, but something that you have noticed that God has done. I don't care if it's a sunrise. I don't care if it's a sunset. I don't care if it's a fan because the air conditioner still doesn't seem to be working Something that you've seen that God... Okay, got it in your mind? Got it? Now, we're all together. We're just going to say, thank you. Okay? Got it in your mind? Get it in your head. Ready? And everyone together said, thank you. That's an act of worship. Showing gratitude to God? We can worship by taking a moment to meditate quietly before God. Now, traditional liturgical churches do this a lot better than charismatic non-denominational churches because, well, you get in a charismatic church, someone's going to have a word from the Lord because silence can be uncomfortable. But let's (laughs) just take a moment to think something about an attribute of God, whatever you want. All right. That's an act of worship. Something we do regularly around here is we take communion together. Communion is an act of worship. In fact, this is one of those acts of worship that according to Luke's gospel, when Jesus instituted and held the Last Supper with his disciples, he said, do this, do this, do this to remember me. Do this as a way to remember me. Why? Because my forgetter's good. A lot better than my rememberer. If you haven't seen these before, there's a little, it's kind of a two-step thing. There should have been one on your seat. If not, steal one from the guy in front of you. The, the, The little cellophane comes off, and that opens up the wafer. And then the second step, hold it away from your white shirt, ask me how I know, and you peel it back, and you've got the cup. Jesus commanded us to do this so that we would regularly, regularly, regularly be reminded of his death and resurrection for our salvation. What makes a gift memorable? Something you've given or received, a gift that you've seen, an actual... What what makes it memorable? has to be thought through and it's got to be chosen specifically for the person in mind. If I bought my wife a snake... It would be memorable, but certainly not appreciated. And it wouldn't last long enough to be seen again. There's got to be a cost involved. Either time to create it or money or whatever. There's got to be something that you invest in it. It's got to have a specific connection with the person who it's being given to. Otherwise it won't have it won't have any impact. Does that make sense? If you want it to connect with someone, it's gotta mean something, it's gotta be something that connects with them. That way, every time we think about it, every time we walk past it, every time we see it, every time we use it, that gift will bring back our appreciation, not only for the gift, but for the person who gave it, and it reminds us of them. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the gift of salvation that Jesus gave to us. In fact, as we go through it, when we take communion, it symbolizes the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. The cup represents his blood that was shed. The wafer represents his body that was broken for us. Just like some gifts will always remind us of the giver, communion always, always reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice and his great love for us. Romans chapter 5 says this, it's it's an interesting verse, and it's always kind of caught my ear, because it says God showed his great love for us by by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Before we'd ever done anything for him, before we had thought to worship him, before we'd considered him at all, God sent Christ to die for us. Today we take communion together to remember Jesus' great love for us. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Take it in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant. Between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood, do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do so to remember your great love for us. Thank you that every time we eat this bread and take this cup, we do so to remember your death for us and your resurrection for us. Thank you that every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we do so to remember that you're going to come again for us. You're going to return. Your promise will be fulfilled and we will be caught up to heaven with you with gratitude that we come today, and it's with thanks that we pray in your holy name. Amen. According to two of the Gospels, Mark and Matthew, after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, Scripture says they sang a hymn, and then they went out. So if you'd stand, and if the worship team will join me, we're going to sing together as we wrap up our service today and then we're going to go out stand with us would you